Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Nathan, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Really well. Thanks very much. Excellent. Just Excellent. give us a bit of insight into social attachment or attachment theory. Well, I think the idea that we're talking about here is that the number one driver of mental illness is um, isolation. So it's understanding that the human brain is really designed to be connected to other human brains. And when it's isolated, it doesn't work properly. It starts to shut down. Um, so, yeah, it's the number one factor in mental illness is isolation. So conversely, the being socially connected to other people, it gives your brain all of the peptides and all of the positive hormones that it needs to stay well, basically. We're just, we're really an interdependent species designed to, you know, we're not designed to be by ourselves. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Some of the research into things like Alzheimer's and all sorts of diseases later in life. Again, yep. that connection all connected is, to that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And is it likely because it's actually a biological process happening, as you just alluded to? It's um, mm-hmm. it is emotional. Yeah. But there's biology attached. Yeah, I think it's because sometimes we like to think of the human brain or the public like to think of it as a computer and it makes us, and things like cognitive behavioural therapy, you know, they lend well to the analogy of a computer. But really a human being is a mammal. They've got emotions and, you know, they've got this limbic system. And the limbic system in your brain is actually the foundation for that um, frontal cortex. It does all those higher cognitive things like planning for the future, you know, controlling emotions all of that cognitive stuff, I think people lose insight of the fact that, yeah, we're mammals and it's all built on the foundation of a limbic system, which is all about emotion, social connectivity, feeling validated, um, you know, it's um, coherence, it's ha- having meaning. Like the number one factor in mental well-being, number two is social connectedness, number one is actually a coherent life story, you know, um, This is a big part also, though, of what we talk Mm -hmm. about in those crucial first three years of life, isn't it? And um, just elaborate a little bit more on on where uh, knowledge is at about um, the the need to connect with a primary caregiver and and to Mm -hmm. to form attachment. That probably hits the nail right on the head because I think the rest of us can take attachment for granted or the majority of the population because the majority of the population receive a secure attachment. There's four different types of attachments that um, we classify in the early years. Um, and the good one is secure, and most people get that. So that, that gives our brains one, two, and three what they need for, for us to successfully grow brain number four. So attachment theory is recognising that and then realising that human beings have this um, emotional limbic brain that needs to be engaged because it's the foundation of your cortex. So, you know what, we talk about the dyadic relationship, which means a one-on-one relationship. So it just basically means that your outcomes are not just driven by your genes, for your brain, your outcomes are a combination between your genes and the environment, and the environment is largely this dyadic relationship. 
So we receive this attachment, this nurturing, this loving, this care. It calms the baby's stress response system. And when you receive that consistently, even in the first year of life, and consistently your stress response system has been calmed, that attachment then allows you to grow a this brain number, this wonderful brain number four. It calms the human stress response system. So it is attachment is related to biology. We need it, or else we would remain much more animalistic and much more in our brain stems and focused on survival. Remind us of the four again. The one is the most primitive, the most basic. Yeah, down at the bottom, the survival brain that does all your basics, keeps your heart beating, and you know it has fight, flight, or freeze. And just think, brain number one, survival. Brain number two is movement. Um, you know, and then brain number three is this limbic system, the emotional brain. A reptile has brains one and two, so a reptile doesn't tend to sh- show emotions because that's brain number three. You know, brain number three, this nurturing brain, this brain where attachment, if you like, comes from, it's in mammals and not in reptiles because reptiles don't parent. Reptiles tend to lay eggs and leave them to it. So they don't need an emotional brain for nurturing and attachment, whereas human, uh, mammals all do. So, we, yeah. And where are we getting with number four? Well, number four was all this wonderful stuff of planning for the future and controlling your emotions and higher intelligence and, you know, for human beings, it's literacy and numeracy and all the wonderful stuff that we tend to focus on when we think about intelligence. But human, but all that sort of computer stuff in some ways, it lends itself to a computer analogy. So um, when, where, we, where we have that dyadic relationship forming in infancy and yep. um, absolute trust in, in, in a primary caretaker, mm-hmm. what about as an infant grows do we yep. need to keep nurturing attachment and how and how do we help a child develop um, healthy attachments plural as they grow yeah uh, yeah we do absolutely need to keep fostering attachment I mean when you that's when you reach adulthood that you've got a full sort of developed developed brain and able to um, be independent and even then in recognition of the stuff we said at the start you're never really independent as a human being we're an interdependent species but you know you don't you have a developed brain somewhere between 18 and 32. So, yeah, they're going to need constant nurturing up to then. That means that, you know, like a firstborn girl might be 18 when she reaches adulthood, and conversely at the other end, a boy who's not the firstborn might take until 32. Everyone's going to be somewhere sort of in that scale, most people. Um, And, yeah, they're absolutely going to need nurturing until then because that brain that controls emotions is not going to be fully developed until then. So you need someone to help you calm those emotions. As a baby, you do it all for them in that first year. Um, You know, you're doing everything to calm their emotions. When they're 18, they're probably calming their emotions most of the time until they have their, you know, break up with their girlfriend or something, and then it's all your job again. (laughs) Um, How do you... Yeah, exactly. 30, 40, whatever. We we return. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you help at different stages, though, or or what is the way um, you focus on the actual nurturing of this? at different ages and stages. Yeah, because what you want is a resilient child at the end of the day is what everybody wants. And I think this can sometimes be counterintuitive because New Zealand seems to think that you get a um, resilient child by telling them to harden up. But the research, unfortunately, says the exact opposite to that, that actually the more nurturing and pampering and validating of emotion we give them, the more resilient they are. You know, developing resilience is really about having more um, resiliency factors than risk factors. You know, so some kids will handle a divorce because they've got wonderful, you know, their parents divorcing because there's got wonderful grandparents around them and because they've got a wonderful relationship with the teacher at school and there's all these other supports. The Mm. nurturing is there, but we're going further, as you've alluded to. We're actually supporting and and almost um, um, instigating a calming response. 
Yeah, and absolutely. What what are, what are the what are the means of, of, of doing that? And staying calm yourself is possibly a, a starting point, I imagine. But give us yeah. some examples of doing it well. Yeah, well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there by saying being calm yourself because your pace is sort of setting the pace for the whole interaction. But a key thing to do is to validate the emotion. You know, that's always key with with a child, with anyone in trauma. That limbic system is going to take over, and 99% of their worldview is the emotion. And we might be calm and rational, but that's 1% of their worldview. So in order to get that 1% and grow it, and to so allow them to calm down and to calm that emotion, you have to speak to the emotion. You have to validate it. The worst thing you can do to a person who's losing the plot is to say, calm down. You know, that's never made anybody calm down because that's the opposite to validating. Validating is hearing their emotion and reflecting it back to them so they know that you've heard it. I can see this is making you really angry. I can see this is making you really upset. Quite literally, on a brain scan, if we've got that her- had that person hooked up to a brain scan and you can see their amygdala, their limbic system, getting more and more active and taking over and so there's less and less juice left for the frontal cortex, when you say to that person, I can see you're angry, or that person says, I am angry, there's an immediately an electrical reduction of activity in the amygdala, which immediately means more of that frontal cortex can come online. So even down to the biology, you can see human beings really need validated. They need you to hear that emotion. So whether that's a two-year-old tantrum because you won't give them a biscuit, rather than going straight to, don't be ridiculous, it's tea time in ten minutes, you say first, oh, I know it's really hard when you don't get what you want. But don't be ridiculous, it's taking only 10 minutes. It's, um, it's validating the emotion first. It's surprisingly effective because it's 99% of their worldview. And if they don't feel listened to, then they're not going to listen to you. So it's not that you give in, it's that you acknowledge the feeling. You acknowledge the emotion. And and then you tell them you're not getting anyway. It's interesting because the, the temptation is always to solve the problem. But mm-hmm. with what you're trying That's to right. do is to get to a point where we can even talk about the problem. Yeah, yeah, and you don't have to solve the problem. Sometimes it's just sitting with the emotion. Yeah, that's really hard when you don't get what you want, isn't it? You know, because it is really hard. It remains really hard for the rest of your life. I still hate not getting what I want. <laughs> <laughs> when this isn't going or hasn't gone well for whatever reason and a child um, is perhaps having issues with being able to either calm their own stress response or have someone else calm them. Yep. So when you're really sort of doing some repair work, if I can put mm-hmm. it that way, yep. Yep. what are some of the strategies? Well, I've really focused on ritual and routine. You know, that the brain really likes to be able to predict things. So if you're always doing that, you have dinner and then you have a bath and then we read three stories and then I sing those two songs and I say that same thing as I shut the bedroom door. That repetitive stuff, the brain really likes that and gets really calmed and secured by that because they can predict it. Predicting, you know, next to the what the dyadic one-on-one relationship for calming the brainstem, that's the number one way of doing it is in relationship. The next most important word in the literature would be prediction. So, you know, to, for the brain, for the child to be able to predict. So routine and rituals, really, really good for that. Two things in a predictable order. Um, I would also do a little, um, I call it a right brain date. There's a um, researcher in England, Oliver, I'm thinking Oliver Twist now, Oliver someone, and um, he talks about love bombing. But it's essentially the same thing. It's you give your kid 10 minutes a week where you stop being the parent and you be their friend and you play with them and all the rules of you being a parent are put aside and for that 10 minutes you do anything that the kid wants you to do and they're in charge. Now it's not to ridiculous levels, you're not allowed to you know, hurt yourself or anything, but 
Essentially, if it is not hurting you and it's not hurting anybody else, the child gets to do that. That might seem really simple. Most really good answers are simple. Um, but the rest of their life, you're in charge of them. The rest of your life, you overrule them. The rest of your life, what you say goes. Um, the kid might not feel heard. So a kid that is having real trouble calming down and is having anxiety um, or having hissy fits and you know losing the plot, often it's because they're not feeling heard. So if you could do that thing of validating like we talked about before, but also do this like 10 minutes a week or do it twice a week if you've got two 10-minute times um, where you set it up where, yeah, if they want to play video games for 10 minutes, you just play the video game with them. You do not answer the cell phone. You do not answer the door. You have it set up where the other kids are already sorted. You give them that 10 minutes of your life. Yeah, and it's a predictable time. Make it like Thursday at 4 o'clock. Now, this might take three or four weeks, but your child will eventually work out that you're actually prioritising that and you're actually making that available and you're actually not correcting them and you're not changing the rules and you're not being in charge. And, and, and sh- in simple language, you're finally shutting up. So the kid can then, then say what they want to say and express what they want to express. It's a really powerful thing to do. How many behavioural problems have at their core, or at least right up alongside maybe something else, this issue? Oh, like 98%, you know, like, um, I think, you know, I've spent lots of years working in child therapy and stuff, and it's not all that, because sometimes it's all the horrible, horrific abuse stuff, but a lot of kids' problems are about not feeling heard, or that their worldview is not validated because it's seen from a child's point of view, and to an adult, that's silly. But specifically this... You know, I'm not even in a part of my brain where I can deal with what you're telling me now or you trying to change my behaviour there now. Yeah, Do we yeah. often go to try and deal to behaviours when behind a very large percentage of them is the yeah. fact they're in this state? Yeah. And we and need think, to get them out of it. Yeah, and it's not one or the other. It's often both, isn't it? You want to deal with the emotional behave, you know, state and then deal with the behaviour. But there's no point dealing with that behaviour when they're in that emotional state because you're in two different parts of the brain and the part that's going to learn that good behaviour and what to do next time and the good strategies and all the good stuff, you're not in that when you're severely emotional. So you calm that emotion. You might not even be then. It might be that you then later on come back and revisit that and talk about, oh, what are some good strategies we could do next time? A question, how to nurture young independent adult in inverted commas away at university? Right. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Because at um, the moment, boy, are we focusing on you know how yeah. young these kids yeah. are? They're young adults, but that's right. But they're young, and mm. yeah, I felt that particularly. My kids are March, the last two are March babies. That means they're starting. They're going away to university in Dunedin, five hours away, and they're actually only seventeen. They're not even eighteen when they're going to orientation and stuff. So I worried about them a lot, <laughs> um, and yeah, on the media now with this stuff, how do we nurture that independence? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? You've got to keep an open line of communication with that child. They've got to feel like no matter what wild risk-taking and experimenting they're doing, that there is always an open line of communication to you and that you will help them first and judge them and tell them off second, but their first response will be to help. I think that's the best thing we can Mm. do. You can't actually control them very much when they're 18. The law's told them that they're, you know, adults. Um, like, but you yeah. can give them permission to keep parenting them, which is interesting because mm. so many times I've heard, and I think it's C Slash would be another one who said, look, they'll tell you one thing, but they want another. Yeah, they'll so tell true. you to sort off, but actually they want you helping. <laughs> that's so true. They 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 still yeah. want you, but they're sure as heck not going to tell you that. So yeah. giving them permission in some ways that if the proverbial hits the fan or you don't like what's happening or whatever, yeah, I'm here. 
yeah. rather than a message, hey, you're off to university, you're a grown-up, um, go and have a great life. Yeah. yeah. Actually yeah. opening the door in a, in a way that... so right, Catherine. And they'll probably go on, but, but, but yeah. you've done it, you've still done it. Oh my God, it. just so overprotective. <laughs> no one else is doing that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I used to joke that my kids, um, all through their teenage years, would complain constantly. They wanted me at home the whole time so that they could ignore me. Like they didn't want to talk to me or interact with me when I was at home, but they got really upset when I wasn't at home. So there's that <laughs> contradicting message. <laughs> they wanted me at home so they could ignore me. That's the teenager. They're full of contradictions. Um, another question. I know you have strong views on this, but um, and this is um, daycare, and specifically this emailer says, please ask about the impact the first three years in a poor quality daycare setting has on the young child and then the growing adolescent. And right. then I guess I would come off the back of that and say, you know, what can you be doing as a parent um, uh, to, compensate. It, uh, to compensate? Yeah, change centres. If it's poor quality centres, well, good, good, good start, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. And the poor quality is the word there because, you know, I, do, I have strong views on um, supporting the research, which, you know, the number one factor is having a parent at home in the first year. But... I don't want to alienate, you know, I had children in childcare in the first year of life. I don't think kids are wrecked by childcare in the first year of life. So the key words there are poor quality. So if they're in that poor quality, what can the parent do to compensate? Um, one of the obvious sort of practical things is that you can make sure they keep giving your child an afternoon sleep when they're at the childcare centre so that that way you don't pick them up and they're dead tired and fall asleep by 7.30 and they're exposed to all the stress of the afternoon when they're tired at the childcare centre. Instead, they go to bed at the childcare centre. They get away from all that afternoon stress. And then when you pick them up, they stay up till like half past nine at night so you have way more interaction with them. And then you're a bigger percentage of their day than childcare if they have to be in full-time childcare. That's just how I managed it when I was in that situation of having lots of kids and needing to work and... Um, it was just a way that I could make sure I spent more one-on-one time with my kids. Mm. This is an interesting question. Um, it's an adult who's saying um, has had experience of emotional abuse and neglect, is deeply lonely. How does one learn to self-parent? Right. And yeah. I think it might be the same, same emailer who says, are there techniques a person can do when they are feeling disconnected before they have found friends? In other words, for someone who's right yep. now feeling this very acutely, yep. can, you self-parent? can you self-parent? Can you, and I, yes. I love yes, the question yes, because it's... I love it too. Yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. It shows deep insight. That's an mm. intelligent question, isn't it? Um, and yes, you absolutely can. You can self-parent. Everyone's got that voice inside their head, in fact, and it's just whether... Is that voice inside your head loving and nurturing you and your best friend, or is that voice inside your head like more like a critical parent? Or somewhere like you know, someone telling you that you're not good enough, that you're not tall enough, that you're not clever enough, that you're not skinny enough, that you're not pretty enough. You know, all of that, not enoughs. That voice, that self-talk, when you look across all the different theorists around Jung and psychoanalysis and, you know, all of them, there's that unifying thing that you, at some point in your life, have to take control of that self-talk. So, yes, you can self-parent. You have to train that voice inside your head to be your best friend and not be critical. Your best friend does make critiques. But you know how your best friend critiques you. They don't say you're too stupid and you're too fat. Um, your best friend might say, okay, is that, if that's really what you want to do, if you set your mind to anything, you can achieve it. Is that, do you think that's a realistic, you know, your friend will challenge you but not be mean. So that voice in your head has to be your best friend. And mirror work surprisingly works for that. Talking to yourself facing the mirror. I know it might sound stupid, but it's amazingly effective on the brain. 
um, and the affirmations that you make to the brain. Your brain's easy to fool in terms of the language that comes out of your mouth. The brain tends to believe. So standing in front of a mirror and, you know, if you believe you're boring and, you know, then standing in front of a mirror and going, I'm an interesting person. I'm an interesting person. And repeating that, looking yourself in the eye ten times over as a morning ritual, you'll be amazed how much more interesting you become. The brain's easy to fool. I think the idea of self-parenting is an important part of, a resili- of resilience in tough times because mm-hmm. it's taking the same things we know about what's good for us and saying, right now, I'm oh, the person so right. who's going to help me, you know? Yeah. And I also love the idea that um, you, you, you're lonely, but you're going to find those friends. You know, yeah. right now, but you, and, and, and it yep. takes work sometimes. Mm. It yep. takes work and risk and putting yourself mm. out there and disappointments yep. to build friendships. They're so precious and they, yes. and they take time. And that's a good question to ask yourself. If I was my own best friend, how would I, you know, treat myself? True. Mm. True. Um, we've, uh, just back to where we were, I think we've, we've probably nailed it, really. <laughs> you got anything right, you yep. want to add? Thank you for your very thoughtful questions today, listeners. Yeah, yeah that's um, great. But it really is that business, and it's, again, if one is self-parenting, it's that business of calming down first. Yep. And then you're in the right bit of the brain to begin to think about it. Not solve a problem in the next five seconds, but to yeah. begin to think about it. But if you go, I think a good line for that is if you go straight to problem solving, you're nagging. Mm. If, you, if you validate emotions first and then go problem solving, you're helping. Yeah. Mm, Good that's point. How it feels. Thanks, mm. Nathan. Nathan Wallace. Uh, tw- links to his many uh, projects on the website, of course, um, and interests. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 